E4E is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoyed today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice. Hello, my name is Dr. Anastasia Pernton. I'm the Associate Director of the Partnership for Public Education. I'll be the host of today's episode, where we are joined by Dr. Lauren Bales, Assistant Professor of Education at the University of Delaware's College of Education and Human Development. Dr. Bales' research looks at the political efficacy of educational stakeholders and the organizational and political context which support democratic participation in school policy systems. We are also joined by Anne Labangana-Clay, the Delaware Department of Education's Ed Associate for Educator Equity and Recruitment and the host of Coaching You Through All Things Education podcast. Today, we've invited them to speak a bit about the relationship between student body demographics and teaching hires while offering policy and practice recommendations for hiring to sustain a diverse teaching workforce. Anne and Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. So my first question is for Anne. Can you walk us through what hiring a teacher looks like for most public schools? How do principals play a role? Okay, good question. So in most of our public schools in Delaware, the hiring process actually begins with allocating time and a budget to employing those candidates who are qualified and capable in the positions for which they're hiring. And then Human Resources provides professional learning on the Delaware Teacher Recruitment Selection Tool, which was developed and and designed in 2016 through West Ed and the Mid-Atlantic Comprehensive Center with the support of the U.S. Department of Education. Then they develop job descriptions and applications that reflect the position And then comes the identifying the applicant pool process. From there, they implement outreach strategies. They do screenings and interviews, calibrating with their teams, submitting recommendations to human resources, checking the references, right? All the things that we know if we have been in a position where we wanted to be hired. And then they offer that position to the best candidate provide that onboarding for them, either through human resources and or through the principal, and then maintaining those strong candidate experiences throughout. So your next question was, how do principals play a role in that? Depending on the LEA in Delaware, the principal usually plays a very strong role in the process, starting with IDing the applicant pools. In other LEAs, it could be the implementing of the outreach strategy stage, or it starts in the screening. So it just depends on that LEA and how involved the human resources department is in those initial stages. But I think the most important piece there for the principal is what we would call maintaining a strong candidate experience. So even though they've been selected as the candidate, that's not where the role of the principal stops. It should be where they are fully involved in, especially with our teacher shortage, making sure that that candidate is feeling welcome and 
feeling a sense of belonging in the district and or charter in our state of Delaware so that we can then continue through the process. And can you tell us a little bit more about the history of teacher hiring practices? Was hiring always this way? And what are the pros and cons of a principal-centric hiring process? So naturally, we're always evolving in the state of Delaware. No hiring practices were not always that way. And hence the 2016 Teacher Recruitment and Selection Toolkit. Prior to that, there were other revisions of it and other ways that our LEAs sought after talent. And so, you know, when we think of how things should be, right, we think of standards and or ways that all educators should be able to have the same experiences when applying and when being sought out as talent in the hiring process. Anything that aligns with standards is the best way to go. And so I'm speaking as if that this, we're talking about the history, but we're really also looking in our department about ways to have those conversations with LEAs as well as our some national stakeholders about what the new standards, the professional learning standards are. And so there's some revisions coming along the way. So, Anne, I'm really wondering, how do biases play a role in the hiring process of educators? Well, it plays a role in the sense that you're forming opinions about candidates based solely on your first impressions, possibly. And a good example is you prefer one candidate over another simply because you think of them as someone that they would be a great person to hang out with, you know, throughout the day. Like meaning your way that you're looking at that candidate might possibly be as someone that you can relate to. And so we're all working on bias all the time, right? Even myself. In our choices that we make when we're hiring, sometimes the choices that we we have to make a choice when we're hiring to be conscientious of the fact that we have intrinsic biases and that they should not influence our decisions. And so that's where calibrating with teams that have been professionally developed prior to the hiring process are really important, you know, so that unconscious bias does not exist through that. Lauren, what are your thoughts? I so appreciate everything that you said. And I think what we see here in Delaware and how we we have worked to respond to it at the professional development level is really indicative of two other things that we see nationally. So one is very similar to what you said earlier, and that's really over the past 40 years, there's been this shift in HR practices from the superintendent hiring to the principal hiring. We see this in nearly every state. It's a really uh, significant shift. And I think that has the potential to have a lot of promise because principals know their students, they know their context, they know their needs, perhaps better than superintendents do. I mean, there are 13,000 school districts in this country. Some are entire states, some are single schools. So what you have in terms of the superintendent versus the principal is when the principal hires a great deal more sort of contextual knowledge. The other thing, and I think this is a legacy that we have to contend with when we think about HR in school hiring is the the legacy of Brown v. Board and what that meant for the massive systemic displacement of Black educators. And so 
my colleague Sarah and I, who co-authored this paper, we looked at basically a hundred years of literature rather than sort of the typical 20 or 40, because we wanted to acknowledge that hiring in schools is never a race-neutral proposition. And so what we saw was that when schools desegregated and they were integrated, often it was the white educators who kept their jobs and the black educators were displaced. And we saw that in a couple of ways. There was also a federal law that indicated that if a person was fired, the person had to be replaced by someone of the same race as the fired person. And so the ways in which schools got around that was they demoted Black principals, Black teachers, other Black faculty, so that their jobs were so menial that they voluntarily resigned, so that that rule was not applicable to voluntary resignations. And so when we think about hiring in schools now, I think you mentioned this, Anne, but I think it's critical to just keep that legacy in mind because where we see the presence of systemic and individual biases is we see, you know, representation. Do our faculty look like our students? Do we have ideas about what qualified looks like or what fit looks like? And for the audio, I'm doing those air quotes because we know that fit is such a problematic term. And so we think about these things collegiality, you know, what we have in common, who you relate to, as you said, and it's likely not to be, has this teacher met the needs of the position? It's much more likely to be, from a principal's perspective, is this person similar to me? And that's where we get the replication of whiteness and of white faculty in schools. So a thing to be incredibly conscientious about when we talk about this, and I appreciate the DD always, uh, DD always perspective on this and the way that they've really paid attention to that in their development and HR practices. So Lauren, you recently did some work that looks at the connection between the proportion of non-white students at a school and the likelihood of a principal hiring a non-white teacher. Is there a relationship between these two components? Yeah. So this is work I recently did with Dr. Sarah Guthrie, who works at the Texas A&M at Commerce. And what we found was building on prior research. So the prior research said principals are more likely to hire teachers of the same race. And so we also wanted to know if that hiring decision was in some way sensitive to the race of the student body. And what we found that as a school gets whiter, we have a higher proportion of white students in schools, then regardless of the race of the principal, that principal is more likely to hire a white teacher. And so what we see are these sort of multi factorial decisions in terms of what we think of or what we presume principals think of as that kind of fit, that kind of relational demography. And this was really a contribution to what we know because there was not, to our knowledge, prior research that talked about hiring decisions as they pertained to the predominant race of the student body. So there are a couple of things that are interesting there. We broke schools in Texas into bands. And so the least diverse were 90% or more white. And what we found was that there were so few principals of color in those very white schools that we couldn't even analyze them. There were fewer than five black principals out of the more than 1,400 schools that included 90% white students. And so we just see this incredible imbalance between the demography of a student body and who's likely to be leading that school, and then who is likely to be hired to work in that school. One of the most staggering things 
that I encountered as we were researching this was that of all the schools in the country, 40% of them have no black faculty members. Mm -hmm. And so when we hear these student, these stories of students who go through an entire K-12 career and have never had a black teacher or a teacher of color, it is surprisingly common given that nearly half of our schools have no black teachers. And so I think that is something that I walked away with thinking, you know, we have some more information about this, but it is still something we have some serious change to tackle. Indeed. Thank you, Lauren, for unpacking your research, you know, and that's hence why, you know, positions are created, right? So that across LEAs and DOE, so that people can look and look at the current data and see what we can do about making a change, right? About that. Like you mentioned, it is a national concern, but we're talking about Delaware. And so we want to make sure that our students and our faculty have the representation that they need to see on a daily basis in every school, in every LEA, in every position. And so it's really critical even to their development as an academic student. We think about the social emotional components, but, you know, students that see, have representation do much better academically and have that success. And of course, you know, that whole pipeline of, of making them good citizens out there in their future careers. So thank you so much for unpacking that for us. Lauren, would you mind talking a little bit more about what happens when there's alignment between the demographics of a school student body and teachers? And what about if there's not an alignment? What does that mean for students, particularly students of color? Sure. So when a student of color has a teacher or a leader who's also a person of color, there are a host of really positive outcomes. So as Anne said, they tend to perform better, which there are some mechanisms that are likely to contribute to that, probably a feeling of support, a feeling of being known, belonging. There are some more qualitative studies about particularly how, how teachers of color tend to engage families of color that also results in higher achievement for students of color. The other things we see are more systematic across a school. So a leader of color and teachers of color are less likely to assign students of color wrongly to special education services. And in fact, they are more likely to be assigned to gifted services, and they're less likely to experience things like school removal or severe school disciplinary procedures. So we see in total this enhanced connection to school, enhanced sense of belonging, this better feeling like I'm known by the people who run my school, like they understand my family, my community. And we think that those are, in some ways, the mechanisms that result in this higher level of achievement in the academic space. So how does the race of the principal impact their hiring decisions? So there are sort of two answers, both of which are probably equally frustrating. One is this varies a lot. So there are some people who are really, really good at encountering and altering their own biases or engaging with systems in a way that broaden the pipelines to educator professions, to school leadership. The other answer is we don't know exactly what the combination of factors is. One of the things that we talked a lot about in writing our paper that we have no way of testing for is housing segregation, that mm -hmm. neighborhoods are white or black or Latinx, Latin A. And so our schools look like that too. And that's, that's something sort of outside the control of an individual principal. 
but we do know, as Anne said, these systemic biases exist. And so one of the many things that I think is incredibly critical is the way in which we develop principals in particular, because they are the main agent of hiring in our schools, to think about those sorts of things and to engage tools like rubrics and teams rather than that sort of gut instinct sense of fit. And so to bring in the data, bring in established practices that result in diverse workforces rather than relying on a single person's assessment of an applicant. And so we see this kind of playing out in a number of ways. When it's done really well, typically in advance, Anne talked about this process, when the posting is done, the correlating rubric is established for what it means to meet the qualifications for the job posting. And one of the things I heard recently when I was working with some principals around this is like, those interviews aren't fun, right? Like they're not sort of freewheeling, they're not sort of casual, and we get to engage the person. And I think that's where we really need to maybe reframe what these interviews are. There, as you said, you know, people tend to think who's going to be a good colleague, who's going to be fun to hang out with. And while those may be important, they are not what the qualifications for the job are. It's Do they have the academic credentials to instruct our students and to meet the socio-emotional and academic needs of the kids that they will be in front of? And so whether or not that's sort of a fun conversation is very different than the ways in which we assess their qualifications. When we think about how principals hire, there is some perhaps reframing or retraining that needs to be done in terms of it doesn't necessarily matter whether this was sort of a chill conversation. (laughs) If we establish that this person, even though they might be different from from you, is really good for the job and really good for the students in the setting. Right. I have to piggyback on that by saying, absolutely. You know, when you're looking for a candidate or, or let's look at other professions, right? Let's look at someone who wants to seek a position as a doctor, right? or a surgeon, let's be even more extreme. (laughs) You know, when they are being looked at, first of all, all their credentials, which is the same for us as educators, right? All our credentials should be looked at very carefully. All that's already in place through the screening process. However, let's say I'm on the hiring committee, right? For this surgeon, I'm not looking at do I get along? And I'm saying they should be personable, but I'm not looking at that, as you said, the collegial demographics, you know, when I'm doing that. Yes, I'm looking to see, are they a well-rounded individual? You know, will they be a team player and not just go according to their own, you know, direction or take directions? All those things are important. However, I'm looking at, are they the best candidate for this position? And so we have to be more fact-based when we're doing that. And when we do that, then the fit will come. Because first of all, you know, we all, all LEAs have missions and visions that are in place and that should have their mindset on student success as an outcome. So anyway, I like what you said there, Lauren, is it's so important. And that's why those conversations of about looking at revisiting you know, recruitment plans, or which should go all the way to the beginning, right? Some LEAs may have to revisit the time that they put into developing those principles, right? So those are all things to think about. 
So I couldn't agree more. I think that notion of sort of backwards mapping the kind of hire you want is incredibly critical. And I think part of that is, and this is something that we found in our research as well, what we often think of as a desirable school, you know, you have experienced colleagues, the neighborhood, and therefore the school might be wealthier. There's fewer teacher turnover events. And you have a more veteran principal. The reality is, or at least what we found, is that those are often predominantly white schools. And so even when you think about where a teacher might want to apply, the pools are very different. And this is something that we need a lot more studies on. And I know DDOE is doing some of this and sort of putting those data sets together and thinking about like, well, if a principal of an urban school that's predominantly students of color has a very different pool to choose from than a wealthy white school. And so there are these resource differentials that also change kind of the universe of choice for principals. And I think that's, that is a broader question of how do we make all schools great places to work? How do we resource teachers appropriately? How do we make sure veteran mentor teachers are in every school setting? But there are also these limits that principals run up against in terms of who applied for the job. And we see this everywhere in Delaware, right? Like the scores of vacancies that are in our schools right now. And there are ways to think about, you know, how do we make them places people want to apply and not have sort of these overwhelming applications in a few small spaces. And in addition to that, you know, a lot of people think, I don't want to say throwing money at it, but that's that's a term, right? Throwing more money into those schools or making those additional stipends, et cetera, available for educators who choose to work in the schools that everyone's not running necessarily to go to, unfortunately. You know, that's not the full answer. You know, it is a really systemic, I'm I'm looking forward to your future research on that. You know, it really is a systemic change that has to happen. It, it's, it's working with, like, I think they just recognized Colonial School District, one of the schools just recently for having a wellness, that they were the very first to have a wellness center. Well, that's huge for building community, as well as supporting families and students in the learning, right, by having that additional service within the school setting. But there's so many other systemic things that need to happen. And I agree with you. Like, you should, an educator in Delaware should want to teach anywhere. And of course, that's my goal. You know, they should want to teach in any building, in any LEA. So we have a great vision. We need to work together to make that happen. We're on our way, for sure. Yes. (laughs) So we've already begun talking about the context of Delaware and Delaware schools, but Lauren, I'm wondering how do you see these findings carrying over to Delaware? And I'm thinking maybe a first place to start is thinking a little bit about what Delaware student body looks mm-hmm. like. I pulled up the most recent data that are available because I wanted to make sure yeah. I was exactly right about this. But Anne, if you have anything more recent, please feel free to jump yeah. right in. So I looked at two things. The Rodell Foundation does an at a glance with all of the student and faculty demography every year. And at present, at the end of the 2021 school year, we had about 42% of all K-12 students in Delaware were students of color. The two fastest growing groups are, they're indicated as Hispanic in the data set, but I Mm -hmm. think 
Latinx, Latin A, and Hispanic is probably the appropriate category. And then the other one would be those who identify as other minorities. So a still fairly small group in Delaware, but among the fastest growing. And so we can think about that as students who identify as more than one race, Alaskan Native students and Indigenous students, and AAPI students. And so that being said, that is growing dramatically and has over the last decade. Our faculty numbers, on the other hand, so teachers and administrators have been the same 73 to 75 for about a decade. And so while that has diversified in terms of gender, it has not diversified a lot in terms of race at the teacher and faculty level. I also double-checked the most recent DDOE report about this, and all of our districts have a gap between the whiteness of the faculty or the diversity of the faculty and the diversity of the students. That gap varies. It's larger or smaller in some districts, but we don't have any districts that are representative in terms of the faculty and the students. I will say I'm incredibly encouraged by the current core of assistant principals. So this is a group that I work with with some regularity. We have the Governor's Institute for School Leadership in this state, which is the assistant principal induction program for third year APs. So advanced APs who are likely to make that jump into the principalship. And that is on the whole more representative of women and people of color than any administrative cohorts we've seen before. So while it's small, it is growing. And that kind of program is indicative of the supports that we want available to aspiring administrators, the kind of cohort and network building that promotes retention among our administrators, and the equipping that they get so that there's the sense of efficacy when they encounter challenges, no matter the kind of school. And that way, they're more likely to stay in those positions and then hire and cultivate more diverse workforces along the way. So, Anne, I'm really wondering what you think can be done by school systems and individual principals to better support, hire, and retain our educators of color. Yes. So that's the work that's already been happening prior to me getting into the role of educator equity and recruitment. But I'm picking up the ball, right? Got my roller skates on because it is really critical to all the things that have been mentioned prior to Lauren and myself about the needs of our students and families and our educators. You know, we're recruiting, but we have to also support them while they're in those positions. And my goodness, we've got to retain them, right? We have too much data that reflects teachers leaving education, not just of color, but particularly of color because they do not feel as if they belong or they're put into schools where there are other systemic concerns or other systemic pieces of the puzzle that may or may not have been addressed. And so it's more challenging for them. So what does that support look like from DOE's perspective and from the state of Delaware is that, first of all, when I talked about that candidate piece, once they're finished being a candidate and they're hired, you know, it's not like you want to woo them, but, you know, you still want to make sure that they feel, you know, just as excited as it was when they got the position. You want to create a culture in a building, and that starts with your principles, you know, where 
everyone feels supported, everyone feels like a sense of belonging, everyone feels like they can ask the questions, they shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. And it certainly should be an open door, meaning like, if I'm a great educator, you know, I should not keep my door closed to even veterans. It should be an open door policy. We're a community of learners together. So that support is critical. In addition to that, and there are some revisions with our mentoring program, where from years one through four, each teacher in the state of Delaware does receive a mentor. The model will be moving more so towards a growth and a coaching type of experience as opposed to, you know, here's how you make your copies and this is, you know, where you get good coffee down the street. Those are all excellent things (laughs) to know. But in addition to that, more of that instructional coaching that would happen. So that mentor will, as revisions continue, that mentor will be more of a coach model. And I think that will be excellent for, as a former coach, I can say that. I know that that's what teachers really desire. And then to retain them, in addition to that mentoring, you know, we have to remember that there are all different areas that, in addition to the paperwork, right, that has to be done. It's good teaching, but then there's the paperwork. How do we create schedules for teachers where they can feel like they have time within the day to collaborate with their colleagues, to design those lesson plans that might need to be revised because the students in their class, you know, needed something different? How do we provide the time and the schedule? And then how do we also provide additional services for them on the campuses, such as mental health breaks or mental health providers who are there for them, et cetera? So there's lots of ideas that are out there, you know, as I continue to listen to the voices of our Delaware educators, the answer will continue to change to reflect them. But I'm excited about the possibilities, you know, of being able to continue to truly support those educators and then to do what we can to retain them. Lauren, do you have any thoughts on the types of initiatives that Delaware public schools could implement to promote a greater percentage of educators of color in the school leadership positions? Yeah, I think one thing that I think is already happening in some places is working with the preparation institutions to be clear from the DOE side and from the school district and school building side about what's needed when educators at every level come out of their preparation programs. When we think about recruiting and placing administrators of color, we're often thinking about who can lead in these very visible ways. And I think what Anne said is exactly right. We have abundant evidence, especially here in Delaware, that strong climate and the sense of we can get the job done together can really overcome some of those resource discrepancies. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be working to provide more equity in those resource areas as well, but that you know, Jackie Wilson says this all the time, teachers don't leave schools, they leave principals. Mm -hmm. And so if we have principals who are supportive, they provide the resources necessary, they indicate that there's a trajectory for growth and leadership and movement through that pipeline. And if they also represent what that pipeline can look like, I think we have a much better chance of retaining those teachers. I think really practically, two things come to mind. 
One is that we know that teachers turn over and typically they leave the profession within about five years if they're going to leave the profession. And so I think we could consider seriously what it means to incentivize principals who retain teachers past that five-year mark. And especially if those teachers are teachers of color, they're likely to spend careers in education rather than cycle out to another profession altogether. The other thing, we pay less than the the other schools in the tri-state area. (laughs) And so if a teacher's good and they want to stay in the profession and they can drive to Maryland or Pennsylvania, they're likely to. And so thinking about what those structures could be for keeping them close to home. And finally, I think this notion of tapping teachers What we know about teachers who stay in the pipeline and eventually reach school leadership is someone they trusted came to them and said, you should be part of this. You should apply for this position. You should be part of this school. You have the skills to do that. And so I think the more that we have people doing that, as you can probably imagine, that happens most among white men right now. They tap other white men for leadership, for advancement, for professional development opportunities. But if you're a principal or an AP and you notice a teacher doing something spectacular, put them up for other opportunities, whether it's speaking at a conference or speaking at one of the many annual statewide events that we have here. Make them visible, say their names in the rooms where things get done and indicate to them that you have great trust and admiration for their skill. And whether or not they want to leave the classroom, that's an indication that this is the profession for them and they're valued and their skills have a lot of meaning in our education context. Yeah, I can't agree with you more, Lauren. You know, the knowledge piece is huge. Like I'm wondering, you know, do all teachers, well, aspiring lead teachers even, teachers, aspiring leaders along that whole pipeline, do they even realize that there are opportunities to develop along that pipeline? And so part of the work that we'll be continuing to do, we're working with Delaware State University, but also our other IHEs, is to have that representation visible, you know, for those potential candidates so that early on they know, oh, there is a pipeline, right? There's not just, I stop here being a teacher. There is something called a teacher leader, right? There's opportunities to lead there. And then those who want to be aspiring leaders and then leaders in the future. So, Knowledge is power, right, is a cliche, but it's so true. I think that the more that they are aware early on that that will help with strengthening our diversified pipeline. But as you said, the professional learning goes hand in hand, you know, at all stages of development and for our principals on down like the conversation we're having now, right? If a principal is not even aware that biases could be present in their hiring process, that's an issue, right? I now have my staff, right? I've got this diversified workforce, but I cannot retain them. Possibly it's because they feel like there might be a bias that's in place or they might feel other things. And so it's really important, just like I said, I'm working on myself. We all need to work on ourselves. You know, it's a daily mission so that we can be more inclusive as well as being able to meet the needs 
of our staff so we can retain them and, and they're happy. So Anne and Lauren, this has been a really wonderful conversation and I'm so thankful for your time today. I just want to ask one last question and that is, where can we direct folks to find out more information about your work or about the topics we discussed today? So for more information on diversifying the educator workforce and or recruitment at DOE, please reach out to me via my email at ann.hlabangana dot doe dot k12 dot de dot us. That's Ann Labangana. And I would love to continue this conversation. You can certainly email me at lbales, L-B-A-I-L-E-S at udell.edu. You can check out my faculty page. I'm very lucky to work with Anne and many colleagues at the DOE. So our work is shared. You'll see all of this in both places. And there are a couple links there to things like EdWeek articles and some other recent work that we can link in the show notes as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of E4E, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udel.edu/ppe.